You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode number seven. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. This episode, we're going to be talking about how to have freedom in your surgical career. Can you imagine freedom from administrative burdens, taking all the time off that you want, and maybe even making more than you currently are in your current job? I'm talking with Dr. Susan Trasciola. She's a cardiothoracic surgeon that after a couple jobs that were less than satisfactory, she decided to go do locums as a career, and she is absolutely killing it. I think you're going to learn a lot from this episode. On with the show. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Bertrands. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Right, today we have a very special guest. I am so excited about Susan, Dr. Tu- Susan Trasciola. Uh, she is a cardiothoracic surgeon who has now transitioned her practice into predominantly locums surgery. Um, I'm so excited to hear about your journey, Dr. Trasciola, uh, because you have so much to offer people because you are living a path that no one imagined is possible and you are just rocking it. So Please, let's start by first just telling me a little about yourself. Tell me about your training and, and, and okay, how sure. you know, it led you where yeah, you are. Right. So I, okay. So I actually was, went to med school non-traditionally, um, took four years off as a teacher. So I went a little later and decided to go into cardiac surgery. It was a big surprise. I thought I wanted to be an internist, but I love surgery. Um, I did my training at Cornell Medical Center for general surgery, um, seven years five of general, two of research. And then I went down the street to NYU for three years of cardiac surgery. Uh, and then I spent a year down at Texas Heart with Joe Caselli, who's one of the biggest aortic surgeons in the country doing aortic surgery. I can only imagine what your training was like, because you know, we always typically think of cardiothoracic surgery as a male dominated profession. And you know, what was your training like uh, as a female? You know, it was a little, it wasn't bad. And in some ways it didn't prepare me for the real world because NYU, there was one female cardiac surgeon and one female thoracic surgeon. So I didn't realize they were fighting a lot of the battles before I got there. So there weren't as many issues. So for example, at NYU, everyone opened the chest from the bottom up. That didn't work for me. It just did like the, the mechanics of it. So one of the, the female cardiac surgeons said, you're opening it from the top down. And so when one day, one of the male cardiac surgeons said, that's not how we do it at NYU. I said, well, Dr. X told me I could do it this way. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they kind of fought a lot of those, ba- you know, battles for, so they had, they had trained other women, they had women on the staff. So I wasn't, no one was like, oh, well, you're a woman heart surgeon. And then it, same thing at um, Texas heart. They had, you know, one of the, uh, Dr. Caselli had a junior, not junior anymore, but she was one of his other surgeons and she was female. So again, she, you know, she would say during a 12 hour case, I'm going to the bathroom. So then it was okay for me to go to the bathroom because she was doing that. So I think it was, my training wasn't bad, but then when I got in the real world and people were like, wait, you're the surgeon, you know, and I just place after place that I've gone, oh, we've never had a woman heart surgeon this is, wow, this is weird. And, you know, just having more like the PAs having male PAs having a difficult time working with treating me differently. Nurses, not as much, but just people not having you 
not being used to taking orders from a woman heart surgeon. So yeah, that's fascinating. You know, and I think that there's such a difference in training in the real world. Um, you know, of course we see a lot of that too in training. Everyone is there to support you. They're there to help right. you. Right. And, you know, we can be lucky like, like you were, and I was as well, where you have these, you know, really fantastic, you know, female mentors that show you what's possible right? and male mentors too, you know, not to minimize them at yeah. all. Right. Um, you know, anyone who is, empowers you and doesn't necessarily focus on the differences of, of what you are um, makes a huge difference. And so I think it's, it's so fantastic that you had that as a, a trainee. Um, yes. and, and I think it sounds like um, from what we've talked before, like your jobs have all offered you something interesting <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so tell me a little bit about some of the jobs that you had as a, um, a surgeon after training um, that influenced you um, in different ways. Well, so my first job that I had was in a small hospital in Pennsylvania. And now I'm coming off of a year with Caselli. With Caselli, we operated every day, seven days a week. A lot of people, patients flew in from all over the country. We saved their lives. We have grateful patients. You know, you walked in the elevator and people would be like, oh, you work with Dr. Caselli? What's that like? So I was kind of like a star. And then I went to this, a new job and I guess it wasn't, I didn't ask the right questions. So, you know, when I talked about my skill set, it was like, oh, great. You'll do great here. We need that skill set. And when I got there, I soon realized the other surgeon didn't really want me doing cases. He really, you know, while in training, you do cases as cardiac surgeon, either with a PA as a first assist or a fellow as a first assist, they didn't even have first assist at this hospital, which should have been a red flag for me. Like, oh, they don't have first assist, but he really wanted me to be his first assistant. And I, so to go from being, and of course I did a lot of first assisting with Caselli, but again, you know, you were felt important. He was telling you how great you were and you're saving this life and the rest of the room is looking to you to explain what's going on all at once. I'm told, don't talk, be quiet, just do cases with me. And this is how I do them. And this is how you have to do them because the way you learned was a bad way. Really? I didn't know that way he was a bad training, but that's kind of what I faced. So it, it took me a while to realize, hmm, this is really not the best environment. I mean, you know, I'm grateful for many reasons for that hospital. I did do cases. I did, I did a lot of thoracic oncology, which I really liked. I think I made a difference in a lot of patients' lives, but it just wasn't the right job for me. Yeah. I think that's such a key lesson that you have in, in that job. And I think that a lot of people are going to take away some important aspects of this too, because I know that when we go to get a job, we don't think about looking at some of those red flags. And right. so it seems like you already noticed some of the red flags um, initially um, and you also noticed that it kind of took you a little while to catch on. So now what would you advise someone who is in this job now and is kind of saying, Hey, I feel like I'm just assisting a lot here too. What were some of the things that, that you would give? What, what advice do you give to someone who's in that position? Try to work with your partner at first, because I tried, I, I tried to, but I really didn't. And then I went around him and that really made him mad. And I went to administration. And I said, I want to do valves. So I think try to come up with a plan with with your partner, like, okay, my goal is in a year to be doing this procedure. How can I get there? So it sounds like you sort of like put your line in the sand and said, I want to do this. That's right. Correct. Correct. Um, Correct. And lo- looking back, um, do you feel like that that was the, um, that would have worked if you had tried it sooner or it, did that work overall or um, it looking didn't work back- overall. Looking back, the mistake I made was not asking about it. I think anyone who was fi- just finishing cardiac 
fellowship, probably, I don't know about general surgery anymore, but cardiac fellowship, you need to ask them very directly, will I be doing cases on my own? How am I going to get patients? So people would refer me patients, but the, this partner would tell the secretary, she do, I don't want any heart sent to her. Huh? What? But like, you don't think that that's possible, but you need to ask the other surgeon and you need to ask administration, how am I going to get new patients? What kind of case am I going to be doing? Who is going to be assisting me? Am I going to be assisting the other surgeon? You know, those are the things you have to ask. Because I think if I'd asked that, the picture would have been very clear to me. And would it have been inappropriate a first year cardiac resident out of training to do a lot of assisting? No, but I just didn't know about it. So it was, it just threw me off. Yeah. And I think you probably, I can imagine like when you're in this situation, you think it's like the carrot in front of you saying just a little bit more, just right, a little correct, bit more, correct, maybe correct. the next case, maybe correct. the next case um, until, and it's, it's very typical for that to take a, a long time to catch on to say like, wait a minute, it doesn't look like I'm ever going to do anything. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And one thing that I, I see people too, um, like in giving advice people uh, about this, like if you find yourself assisting is not to be afraid to ask, like, you know, I'd like to do this part. Um, is, you know, really kind of forcing the yes or no. Um, it's, right. We can sometimes make it easy for, and, and this is not to say the other person is a terrible person. They just don't know how to, some people just don't know how to mentor surgeons. That's right. You know, um, they have their own ideas of like, I have to do it all, or, you know, what's, what does it mean about me that I'm not doing the case? Um, I've had some great, you know, mentors, like you know, jobs that I've had that have been great, you know, that, you know, if I'm doing a case with them and all the ones who are like, okay, you saw that anastomosis. Okay, saw that anastomosis. And I mean, it's a lot more fun to first assist. And sometimes it'll be a really hard case and they'll turn to me and say, you know, I'm not going to have you do much, but they always have you do something. But I think just having clarity in the beginning. And, right. I, and as I said, I think when you first get out in a job, you have to ask that question. Yes. And I think a lot of people are afraid to have these um, conversations either for one thing, it doesn't occur to them. Right. And the, the second thing is a perception that we would be demanding. Um, right. And then of course, then there's the, like, if I ask, if they say no, what does that mean? And so I think a lot of people don't recognize that no is the start of negotiation. You say, I want to do this part. And they say, no, it's like, I just want to understand what I need to do to do this part. And therefore you now have your, um, the qualifications that you need to do say, oh, so I just need to do this much now. Now you have specifics. And so then, you know, you have a little bit more of an understanding, but you have to be able to ask in the first place. And the first thing is giving yourself the permission to ask that you're not being demanding. This is part of, of what you need to do um, right. to do that. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Oh, no, I was too afraid to ask. And I, and I stayed in the job. I mean, I, as I said, there were some good parts. I did help some, but just also realizing you don't have to stay in a job that you're miserable at or you're not treat, being treated or wherever referral that's referred to you gets rerouted. Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, definitely something that I see in coaching too, because, you know, a, a lot of people know that this is not right. You know, they, they are in a job, they kind of get the vibe, you know, in the back of their head, like this is never going to happen for me, is it? And, but they spend their time saying, but I get to do this. And, you know, you, you try to find the good parts of the job. And I think that it really is important. I think we do have to find the good parts of our jobs, right. um, but we can't ignore the big red flags of, you know, you can't like say, well, I'm just going to accept this lesser thing, you know, right. to avoid challenging the bigger thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it sounds like you eventually did. Um, so how did that, um, how did you finally 
move on from that job? Like, what was it that, that took for it? Was it just kind of a gentle realization or was it like a, you know, woke up one day? It was gentle. It was just with time. And then, I mean, I think it was going to a meeting and meeting people that said to me, Oh, would you like to come work for me? And I was like, Oh, there's other jobs out there. So I think it's getting rid of that scarcity. You know, I mean, I was dating someone in the area and thinking I have to live here because I'm dating this guy. And you know, there's no other jobs out there. Because in fact, when I graduated, there weren't a ton of other jobs out there, but getting rid of the scarcity and realizing, okay, I don't have to stay in this job. There are other jobs out there was a big step. That keeps a lot of people in a job too, is, um, is also this perception of like, if I change jobs, that'll say something about me as well. No, I mean, everyone changes jobs. Not like now. I mean, it's pretty rare to meet a cardiac surgeon that stays in one job. So, I mean, there are a few, but lots of people change jobs. Yes. And I remember seeing the statistic that two thirds of graduates are going to leave their first job. And so now, which is either you've picked the wrong job or, uh, you know, we're not really taught these red flags. And so I'm hoping that some of these red flags we'll see ahead of time. Um, So tell me a little bit about the, uh, so now you go to another job. What are some of the things that you learned in that job? Well, at that point, I knew I needed some mentoring. I mean, because I had spent a year doing aortas. NYU was very heavy into valves. And really, as a cardiac surgeon, you get judged on your coronaries, you know, and that was not something we spent a lot of time on in my training. So I knew I needed some mentoring. So, and I had two pretty strong job offers, very high salaries, very high bonuses, but one promised me that they had a retiring surgeon and that he was going to mentor me. He would spend six months with me doing cases, helping me become a better surgeon. And then he did one case with me. Yeah. And um, there's this interesting aspect. I've talked about this before, but like the, the three stages of the career, there's the first is our hustle. You know, we get out yes. there and like we're hustling. And then the mid career is kind of like, is this all there is? Right. right. <laughs> and the third one is you kind of butted up against someone in the, the third portion of this, which is choosing a successor. And the thing is, is that someone is always going to succeed you. Um, but the question is, do you give it to them or do they have to take it from you? Right. Um, and so it seems like this person was not willing to uh, necessarily give you the idea of a successor, which, you know, we, a lot of times will make it mean something about us, but a lot of times it's the, they're just not ready to give this up. If this is their entire identity, it's difficult for them. Well, for him though, we decided to mentor a male. I mean, there was a male that was at that institution that was doing mostly thoracic and wanted to do cardiac. So he was with him for the six months I was promised for every single case, Yeah, every single case. And again, I was told I was going to have that. That was part of the reason I chose that job over the other job, which actually was going to pay me a lot more and I didn't get it. And again, I think if I had coaching at that point, I would have figured out a way to ask for it and been like, Hmm, we talked about mentoring and you've been in my case once you've been in my case three times. I would like someone to be in, you know, every Wednesday to be in case with me or every Tuesday to be in case with me. Um, right. And I should have, you know, asked for that. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to see the lessons that you learned in there too, because I can only imagine how painful that's, that was to watch. Um, it's so easy to say like, what's wrong with me? You know, right. well, and I do it, I view it as a complete rejection. And, and it's only in retrospect that I realized someone else got my mentoring. And I, again, I was promised that I was very transparent. I remember a guy said, you're kind of like, a, you know, a Mercedes that's been in a garage for a while. And I, I did feel like a Mercedes, but they didn't put any oil in me. <laughs> that's actually the best thing I've heard. Like a Mercedes has been in the garage for a while. 
Well, you know, what's I absolutely love about, you know, both of these jobs that you, you recognized the problem. You may not recognize right away, but you can look back and because some people don't ever get past that. They don't actually, now they don't think they're a Mercedes anymore. You know, they don't recognize they're just a Mercedes in the garage. They think they're just not a Mercedes. Um, Or not even a car. And I think, I mean, so then I went and did welcome because I said, you know what, these surprises on jobs I don't want anymore. And all, but what's interesting, I didn't get any mentoring the next job, but I had to become a Mercedes because like a month after I left job two, I went out to Tulsa and I arrived and they're still doing computer training. And then one of the cardiologists comes up to me and says, I have an acute dissection. This patient needs to go to the OR. The other patient, the other surgeon is in the OR. I said, okay, I guess I'll go. And so I didn't even know where the OR was at the time. And in fact, I turned to the nurse practitioner and I said, ma'am, can you help me write an admission or a consult note? And she said, no, we don't do that for locums. I said, okay, I don't know how to use a computer. I don't know where the OR, but I figured it out. And because I had done so much aortic work in um, the year before, and I just kind of, I said, you know what? Like I didn't go into the case saying I've got to do a good job. I just said, this is what I was trained to do. And I went in and the patient did great. I mean, it was a bad dissection. The patient was extubated the next morning and everyone was like, what the heck? And all at once I realized I was a Mercedes and I didn't really need any oil. I just really needed to believe in myself. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's unbelievable. So your very first day in a locums and you know, you have someone who's not even going to help you use the EMR and you just right. do this dissection. <laughs> Which is one of the harder cases we do in cardiac surgery. And, and I did it differently, but I, you know, got in the room and I said to the anesthesiologist and the fusionist, this is how I do it. I put a graph here. I want you to go to this temperature. I want you to give steroid. Boom, 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 boom. And I did it. Amazing. So where do you think that you drew all that, uh, that confidence from? Because, you know, it's just, it's, it's so amazing and inspiring to, to like, listen to you just say like, oh, this is no big deal. I just did all this. I Um, think it was kind of anger at not speaking up at my first two jobs. Yeah. You know, and just realizing I had to do something different that if I just sat back and said, okay, I don't need mentoring. Okay. You can take all my referrals. That wasn't going to work that I just had to go and own that I was a surgeon. You know, I just had to own that. You were that Mercedes. I love it. Yeah. It's like, I didn't get mentoring. And then I also suddenly realized I never needed y'all in the first place. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's so inspiring. So now this, so this takes you on this locums journey. Um, what were some of the hesitations that you had before you started locums and, you know, were they realized or were you able just to kind of dispel your thoughts? Um, I think I was just, wor- you know, worried, am I going to be good enough? Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, locums has just taught me I'm great. I'm a great surgeon. I'm, I'm great with patients. I'm great with referring doctors. I mean, when I go into a locum place, I own it. I don't go in and like, I'm just a locums. I'm like, Mr. Smith, you got an acute dissection. I'm not going to be here in a week, but I'm going to take care of you tonight. And I'm going to get you through the surgery. Yeah. I think that's really great that when people think of locums, you know, that you just come in and, and then you don't have the follow-up. How do you feel about not having the follow-up and, and what are some ways that you work with that? Um, I usually do because usually if I do big cases, then I, um, We'll see them down the road or I'll tell, um, especially for the big cases, I'll tell, you know, whoever's there, let me know um, how they're doing. And then I also like anyone that has a dissection, I usually give them my phone number. Okay. So, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, I miss out a little bit. I miss out a little bit, but I usually, I'll try to see them when I come back in a month or something like that. What is the relationship that you have with the doctors that you're covering for? Um, you know, do you communicate with them often or, or how is that? It varies. It totally, like when I, so I was in Tulsa, that's where I did the dissection. And then I took a full-time job 
eventually. But before I took that job, it was nice. There were two locums. So it was myself and this other guy. And so we would communicate. And then what was nice is I would line cases up for him and he would line cases up for me. So I would come in on a Monday and he'd be like, okay, I have two cabbages that need to go. These are my cases. And then, so it was really, it was really great. And versus, um, yeah. And, and then again, some places, like I went to a place in Florida, I'd come on a Monday and they'd be like, there's 10 cases, you're doing five, I'm doing five. So that, you know, that's very good. Other people don't want really you to take ownership of their patients. They check in a lot. So I think you have to play it by year and you have to play it. You know, how much does the other surgeon want to know? Right. Yeah. A friend of mine who also does locums, um, he does orthopedic. He actually makes a list, which I've never done, but I think that's a great way to do it because he sees a lot of ER patients. So he'll make a list he covers on a weekend of every single patient he saw this patient I sent to your office, this patient, I did this, this patient, I did this. I mean, with cardiac, it's a little easier because I don't usually get discharged. So I can just say, okay, this person did this, this person, I did this. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. And, you know, I think as more people um, realize that, that taking time off and, you know, the idea of sabbaticals and really, you know, vacations, things that, you know, we feel like we've never given ourselves permission to do. I think that, you know, having someone that you trust that, you know, can pick up for you. So, you know, that, that knows that that's their job to do that, that you're not dumping on them. It's not like a withholding, you're not making them look bad. And I think the whole idea of, you know, having such a collaborative relationship with someone is, is I really think the, the answer to some of the problems that a lot of us are having. Oh yeah. And they're so appreciative. I mean, cause if you go in a place and you take good care of their patients, I mean, I get calls, I go through locums companies, but I get calls directly from surgeons. Of course, they never plan ahead. And they're like, oh, can you cover next weekend? And I'm like, no, I'm at another site. But, you know, they're, they're very, if you take good care of someone's patients, they're appreciative. Right. And what would you give um, advice for the, um, the surgeons that you're taking over? Like, what are the things that help you as a locum surgeon? Well, let me do some cases. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, there's one or two sites I've gone where, you know, they don't do that many cases. And I guess I understand that. But um, communicate with me, tell me your preferences. Um, you know, if you're very particular, you don't like using a certain drug or whatever, let me know. And I think being available, it's been helpful, you know, because I think one of the harder things is figuring out the politics and, you know, some people send patients home this day, some people take chest homes this day. So if you don't have really good physicians assistants that are going to help you, you know, maybe give me your phone number so I can text you if I have a question. I think that that's helpful. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I think a lot of it is just influenced by the relationships that we've had in the past. You know, I've, right. I've had partners that like my patient could be on fire and they won't touch him over the weekend. It, she'll deal with it on Monday, you know, right, right. right. So, you know, someone like experience like that may be hesitant to give cases thinking that you're dumping on it. Um, whereas it's interesting to see what your perspective is, is like, oh my gosh, just let me do something already. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I don't go back if I don't do cases and, you know, most places, I do cases in 99% of the places I go, you know, so, but sometimes, you know, I've had it where I know I'm not going to do a bunch of cases, but it's part of the country I want to be in. And I go, you know, and take care of all this stuff while I'm there. The locums has given you a lot of flexibility. Where are some of the problems that you've had um, with locums? Like what are some of the disadvantages? Um, you have to travel. So I think it's hard if you have a family, I don't have a family. Um, so, I mean, you have to travel is one disadvantage. Um, they, I mean, an advantage is you can cancel with 30 days notice, but they can cancel with 30 days notice. So that, you know, I mean, it's, if you're someone that needs complete order, it's harder, but I think once you believe there's no scarcity, it's less hard. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think some people don't like it because, you know, sometimes I don't have a plan for the next three months. 
but if you know you're going to have a plan, you'll like, I, I had never needed work and not been able to get it. I have to turn work down, but you have to believe that. So you have kind of have to change your thinking a little bit. I can imagine. Um, and I know that the COVID, I, we didn't actually talk about this beforehand, but um, so tell me how COVID has influenced um, your locums, uh, your profession. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot less jobs and, and there's been less cases, but I think there's been, I mean, cardiac surgery was down like 50% during COVID. So, um, but I was very fortunate. I went to a hospital that needed coverage for um, trauma. So, you know, cause a lot of places have turned, have said no to locums because they're not doing that. Attendings aren't doing cases. The surgeons aren't doing cases. So they're not going to bring somebody in, but I was lucky. Um, so there was a little less option of where to go during COVID. If someone were interested in starting, you know, um, locums as, you know, kind of a profession, um, what were some of the things that you would advise them to look for in a company? Well, first, before you even get involved in a company, get yourself organized, scan all you need, everything electronic, you need your diplomas electronic, you need your board certifications electronic, everything electronic, you need a picture electronic. So get, you know, take all those frames down and get everything organized before, because being able to have quick turnaround, locums companies love. So when I started doing locums, there wasn't take a picture of my iPhone and send it. So I actually used to have a scanner that I would bring with me because people would love it. They'd send me forms, I'd return it the next day. Um, and then look out, you know, try a few different companies out. I mean, it, it, some companies have reputations, but it's also the recruiter. So I would never, like right now, I have at least two recruiters and I would always recommend having two recruiters at a time. Yeah, so I guess just don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right, right. And it takes about three months to kind of get going. You know, it takes about, they have the credential company, credentialing company has to credential you first, and then you might need state licenses. So if you, like, if you're even thinking about doing locums, reach out to a locums recruiter and get yourself, get yourself in the system. Right. And I don't think that seems a problem like for a lot of us. I don't know. I get calls all the time. I've blocked as many numbers I possibly can. Right, right. Uh, they still, they're very resilient. <laughs> they're pain in the neck. They're a little like used car salesmen and what? Right. But, you know, at least it, it looks like the choices are, are up to us. Um, what are some of the red flags that you've seen um, that you could advise someone when it comes to the, some of these companies? Um, someone that presents you without telling you the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, so if there's a job in Florida, you know, the guy I call, he'll call me and he'll say, OK, this is what they need. Two weeks a month. This is the pay. Um, you know, this is the hospital that does this many hearts, they have PAs, blah, 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 and then tells me, and I'll say, no, I don't want that rate, I want a higher rate. So someone that is not clear about giving you all that information before presenting you, that's definitely a red flag to me. And when it comes to the, um, uh, you know, figuring out how much you should get paid, um, where, where do you get the idea of numbers uh, from and how do you determine if a job is fair? Um, well, we have, there's a few Facebook Logan's groups, mm-hmm. but then there's also, um, I think by having more than one recruiter, you know, like, and that's when I first started, I realized like I went with the first company and then the second company said, oh, we have stuff in Florida. And then they gave me a rate. And I was like, oh, that's exactly the same. So I knew, you know, it was a good rate. And, um, but yeah, talking to other people that are locums really. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know that, you know, we typically talk about MGMA data for um, salaries, but I know locums is different and, and it's so regionally dependent. So it, it sounds like the, the best thing is, is getting as much information as possible to know if Correct. it's fair or not. Have you ever tried to negotiate a higher fee with a locums company? Has that ever worked? Oh, I do all the time. I do it like almost every time I get a new job. I mean, and that took me a long time, but I, yeah, because there's so many options, um, 
yeah, I do. I, you know, I, de- it depends. Like if it's a site that I know they don't have other candidates for, I will try to push because you for cardiac surgery, you get a payment for four or five hours, you get a certain amount of money and then you get an hourly fee. So I used to like one locums company used to give me a payment for four at five hours, but I recently said, no, I want that same amount of money, but for four hours. Hmm. Um, so yes, you can negotiate that. And there's other things you can negotiate, you know, like I like to stay in nice hotels. I want a hotel with a kitchen. I want to be able to fly in the airlines I want. So sometimes you can't negotiate as much with the money. And I mean, have the locums company work for you. Like a lot of people say, oh, you should, you know, independently contract. And that works for some people. But for me, I like that my travel's scheduled. I like that all my forms are filled out. I like, you know, I, I, I like that all of that stuff is done. So if, as long as I'm getting enough money, I have a certain amount of money. I have a monthly budget that I want to make. As long as I can make that, I don't care how much you make off of me. I mean, I do and I don't, you know, but they're helping me a lot too. You know, I have one locums company that pays for state licenses and they fill the whole license out. They do everything. Yes. And tell me the, um, tell me the story that you were talking about with the forms. I, I love this part. Oh, well, so, I mean, I have one company, I mean, the forms are a pain in the neck. So every time you credential, you go to a new hospital, you have to fill out forms. So I have one company that fills those forms out for me. A woman fills them out, everything she fills out. And she just FedEx me what to sign. She'll FedEx it with another envelope in it to FedEx back. So this other company hasn't been doing that for years. And now that I'm full time, I was like, I'm kind of sick of this. And company A doesn't have all the jobs I want. So I said to company B, I said, okay, okay do you have someone that fills out forms? No. I said, okay, then I don't want the job. Oh, actually we do have somebody. <laughs> and then they had someone that wasn't very good. And I said, no, this person isn't very good. You need someone better. So they got me someone better. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that really, you know, um, in listening to your story, you can already see like where you feel your power is. I mean, you're, you're, you are owning the power, like you are the CEO of your life. And I know that a lot of times people are like, well, what does locums company want? Or what is this? And it seems like you really truly embody that. What do I want? Right. I know I bring a lot to the hospitals. I mean, I know I do cases. Well, I take care of patients. Well, I talk to referring doctors. Well, I mean, if you want to do locums to go sit at a site and just earn money, I have no advice for you because that's not how I do locums. But if you want to go and take ownership of it, I mean, you know, there was another site. I wanted a job in California. It was from October through I'm here now. And they said, well, you have to work Christmas or Thanksgiving. I said, okay, I guess I said, that's not negotiable for me. Yeah, I can't, I don't want to work either holiday. So I guess I can't take the job. Oh, you don't have to work the holiday. But, I mean, you have to look and do I get everything I want? Yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> I, well, I, I do and I don't. Yeah, I know, but I pretty much do. And it, like, especially, I mean, I have one recruiter. You know, I took a job last year. I usually like to have like at least a week off. And I took a job last year and it was in Florida and it was February, March, April. And I thought it was three weeks a month. And I said, yes. And I signed on. And then like two weeks before I start, I realized it's full time. Like I get two days off, like Part of the reason I like locums is my mom has Alzheimer's. I like spending time with her. Um, you know, I, I like my time off. I love my time off. And I was like two weekends a month. And I was like, no, I don't want this. I don't want to work three months straight. Like, I don't like, no. And he, you know, he turned to me and this is someone I've been working a long time. And he's like, Susan, I can't lose this. Like, this is a new company. This really means a lot to me. And then he said, how can we make this work? So how do we make it work? He offered to fly my mom in. So in fact, it was over Easter 
he paid because my parents were in Florida, but too far. He paid for a car service to pick them up and drive them to my house and drive them home. He got me a really nice condo. I had a condo overlooking the water that was two bedrooms. So my parents could sleep in it, you know? And so, yeah, he made it work. Like he made it work. But so you have to realize sometimes you have to make sacrifices, but then they have to kind of give you something back is how it works. And then now I have another company, the same thing happened. I didn't realize I agreed. And they were like, how can I make it work? And I was like, I don't want to go. And they're not as good as kind of giving those things um, in all honesty. So yeah, that's why you have to have a few recruiters, but sometimes things aren't perfect, but I do feel like I get everything I want. I mean, I had to have two surgeries last summer. Everyone wanted me to work. Same guy. I really need you to cover. I said, no, I'm having foot surgery. I cannot walk, you know? So I think it's deciding what's important to you. You know, like I have a goal of how much I want to earn. I want us to be able to see my mom. I want to be able to see my friends. I want to be able to take care of myself. And once you have that goal, then you just have to do it, you know, but that's hard about locals. You don't get paid if you don't work. So if you start going, oh, I take this month off, I'm going to lose. I mean, like for me, I can make 80, I can make 80 to hundred thousand dollars in a month. So if I take a month off and I think I'm going to lose, I should say 60 to hundred thousand, but you I mean, you make good money. I can make good money. You think I'm going to lose 60 to hundred thousand. It's hard, but then you have to say, I have, you know, I'm a cancer survivor and you have one life. Do I really need to make $1.2 million? I don't, I don't. For me, being able to sit in my garden and garden and spend time with my nieces and nephews is more important than me making 1.2 million, to be honest. And that's, you have to decide what do you need? And I think this like absolutely critical because I think that you're forward thinking and you're directing your life. You know, I talked to a lot of people about the differences. They don't realize why they're not getting what they want. And what happens is, is that you get in this role of being a reactor. I'm just reacting to what's going on. Um, but you have like truly embodied this idea of a creator. You know, I know the life that I want and I'm going to, you know, work towards that, even if it doesn't look exactly like I want you know, I know what I want and that's how you're making it happen. I think that's such a, a powerful lesson for people to hear. Right. Yeah. And I definitely didn't realize that in my first two jobs. I thought that's the only job I can get. But now, yeah, as I said, I, I want to, I know what I want. I want to be able to operate. I want to be able to make money, but I want my time off. Right. And, and I think this, this comparison of, of like understanding the effects of those two jobs had on you, right. uh, you know, luckily that you never lost who you were. And I think that right. is one thing that a lot of people do is they lose who they are and then they're not able to embody and, and recognize all the power that they have. Right. Um, and so I think it that took a long time to, yeah. it took a long time to realize my power, mm-hmm. you know, and then once I did the world, like, as I said, once I realized I could start saying, no, I want more money. It just happens. Right. And so what have been um, some of the biggest surprises for you at, at Locums? You know, what are some of the things that you've, you know, like what your life looks like now that you never would have imagined? I mean, I took 12 weeks off last year and I made almost 50% more than I would have I made in my last job. Yeah. 12 weeks, that's three months. I mean, most okay. surgery jobs you get four to five weeks off. I mean, some local place I go, the surgeon says I haven't taken a vacation in five years. Okay, that's your, your choice, but that's not my choice. So I think I think realizing you can make a good amount of money, have time off, that's surprise number one. Number two, that patients allow me to operate on them. Like you wouldn't think you would, and I'm very upfront with patients. I'll say, look, I'm only here for the week, but I'm gonna take good care of you. 
and you're going to be followed by X, that people will allow um, me to go do heart surgery on them when I'm only there for a week. And it sounds like the physicians are very accepting of it. And yes. the patients, it sounds like if you're upfront with them, seem very accepting of it. Oh, I've never had a patient say no yeah. because I'm a locums, never. That's amazing. Yep. And what are some of the, have there been any relationships in the hospital that have been a bit of a challenge as a locums? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there, you know, there are surgeons that don't want you doing cases, especially if there's private practice surgeons or they're getting paid by the cases. And I know, because when I was in, you know, when I was in Tulsa, we used some locums and I remember this locums wanted to do like 10 cases. And I looked at them and I was honest. I said, you cannot do all those cases. I get paid based on the case. You can do some of them, but I got to be able to do some. Um, but there's some places that you can't have that conversation with them. So I don't go back. I just say, well, I guess I'm, well, you either don't go back or you figure out how to make it work. I mean, like during COVID, I didn't get to do a lot of open heart cases, but I found other ways to make that assignment work. I got really good. Like I worked with a cardiologist and I got really good in the cath lab and I did mitral clips and TAVARs and ruptured aneurysms. So, like I did a lot of that. I taught the fellows. You know, I actually did lectures for the fellows and I helped in the ICU and I did a few cardiac. I mean, it's not that I didn't do any. I mean, I still did 50, 60 open hearts, but you have to figure out, are, is there other things at that place that are good or enough or no, do you need to move on? And, you know, now that COVID's over, I wanted more cases, so I moved on, but you can also find ways to make a place work. Yeah, it sounds like way. Um, and I love how you, you know, are adaptable in that, that respect too. It's like you still, again, you know, you're creating the, the experience that you want, not the one that you're given, um, which is such a powerful lesson too, for us to, to realize that we can do that. Now you mentioned, um, that, that one of your jobs that the, that a nurse wouldn't even help you with the EMR. Do you find a little bit of resistance here and there? I do from the, you know, most cardiac programs, have PAs or nurse practitioners. So, I mean, my first day doing the locums, I had to do an AR dissection. I didn't even know where the OR was. And I turned to the nurse practitioner. And I said, can you write the admission note? And she said, we don't do that for locums. So yeah, I do find that some places they just don't want to help you. But the good thing about locums is I get paid by the hour. Mm-hmm. So they don't want me to write the notes. That's what I get to charge more money. And, and then you try to work out some kind of compromise. And I mean, again, in some ways it's harder to be more definitive because I'm never worried about losing my job. I mean, I remember I was at a site early when COVID happened and there was a patient that had something weird in their heart. We first thought it was tamponade, no tamponade and echo. Then the CT looked abnormal. There's something around the heart. Myself and the cardiologist trying to figure it out. And then the patient tanked at like six in the morning, just blood pressure going down, have to intubate them. So I said, I got to bring this patient to the OR. I have no idea what's going on, but I have to bring them. And one of the male physician assistants thought that was a bad idea. You should, you should not operate on a COVID patient. You can't do, you can't do open heart surgery on a COVID patient. Now they had never had a COVID patient there. So I called up a woman I knew from Facebook who had been managing COVID patients. And I said, Nicole, what do you think about me taking this patient? She said, do it. And I did, but I mean, he actually went to administration to tell them not to let me operate with, and he had no knowledge. I brought the patient to the OR. They ended up having an abscess of the heart and I saved the patient's life. I think it might've been harder to do if that was a permanent job to just say, I disagree with you, but I'm going to bring them anyways. 
Yeah, it's interesting that um, it gives you a little bit of freedom to know that, uh, you know, it, it eliminates this idea that, oh, I, I, I have to do this, otherwise I'll lose my job. Right, because you know what? Like if they had fired me because I saved someone's life, that's not a job I want to be at. Yeah. You know, and I know there's lots of other local opportunities. But as I said, I think it's harder in a permanent job to do that. You're kind of like, oh, I don't want to upset people. Okay, you know, this is what they're saying. Right. No. So what does life look like for you now? Um, where is your next phase of your uh, your career? Um, I mean, now I'm just trying to balance having, I mean, finding sites that I like. I mean, I get offered full-time jobs all the time and I turn them down. Um, but I think it's just, it's actually trying to figure out how to cut back. So continuing to raise my rates, but I would love to be working a li- even less than I am. Hmm. Now, um, I know that uh, you have, not everything has been easy going and, and smooth sailing with locums. And, you know, feel free if you want to talk about this. I know that you had a bit of a health. Um, yeah, well, I had breast cancer. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I mean, I had stage three breast cancer and they actually thought I had stage four breast cancer. I was in my forties. I was at a locum site. I had delayed getting my mammo because I was like, how do I get a mammo while I'm doing locums? And then I knew I had it and I got diagnosed down there and I flew to Boston the next day because my friend, uh, Someone I had trained with said, come on up. And I could tell I had a very big mass. I could tell by the look at her face that it was bad. My sisters were there. And I said, what do you think? So I whispered, what do you think is the chance stage four? 50%? And she said, no, much higher than that. Mm-hmm. And then when I, I went in, I got scammed. And when you're a scanner, you don't think, oh, why did I turn down that million dollar job? All I thought about was, why did I agree to work so many hours? Why did I agree to stay late to die at 42 years old? I mean, I always say that was life-changing for me. Right. And then I didn't have stage four, but I really thought, because I didn't, ductal is more common. I had lobular. I think if I had ductal, I would have had stage four. Changed my life. And, you know, at any time, I mean, tomorrow's not guaranteed. I could get cancer tomorrow. Anyone can get hit by a car. I mean, I know everyone wants, wants to get fire and I want to get fire, but, you know, financial independence, but you kind of enjoy this life you have now. Right. You know, so I, it, it just, it changed my, it just changed everything for me. And I think it also taught me that someone else can take care of my patients. I mean, I think I stayed late when I was a fellow early in my career, because I thought, oh, I'm the best cardiac surgeon I can manage. Well, guess what? I, I do these big operations and I leave these sites and the patients do okay. And I think that is also really important to realize is, I mean, and I'm not saying to people leave at five o'clock, but you, there's a call system for a call system, right. you know, like we should allow as cardiac surgeons, we should allow the other guy to say, Hey, I got this. You go home. Right. I know this is your patient, but I got this. Yeah. There's so many um, aspects in, in, you know, your hero's journey. You know, we talked about this as like hero's journey. There's so many lessons that, that you can learn from just your story alone, which is, right. you know, like choosing the jobs and being careful of what's happening. You know, don't be afraid to ask for the red flags, um, you know, to make sure you identify this before you get the job. And that, you know, a bad job or two jobs or whatever doesn't define you. Uh, you're still yeah, the Mercedes. Join. I mean, people, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I like the Mercedes yes. part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also, you know, life is short and and other people can take care of stuff. You know, we worry about the patients thinking that we're not. And, you know, a lot of times it's our expectations that the patients are not going to accept someone helping is, is you know, the patients just want to get taken care of. Right. Um, 
And I think that, you know, it's clear that you are, you know, highly capable and confident and care. Um, and that is why you're getting the jobs that you're wanting. And, and I think that's how you are successful in locums is that you're adaptable. You have decided what you're going to do for the job and you're going to insist on that happening. Um, and you recognize that life is too short. So you're not going to accept anything otherwise. And, you know, the irony is that you're making more working less. And so if that's not a lesson, people don't want to, I, I mean, I think everyone's be lining up for that lesson alone. <laughs> right, 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 right. And just because you don't have success at one place, doesn't mean you're not a good surgeon. You know what I mean? As I said, yeah, I mean, you have to find your niche. You have to find what works. But I think it's sad to see so many people leaving medicine because they're sick of this or sick of this. Like, I love being a cardiac surgeon. Like, I mean, there's nothing more, brings you more joy than saving someone's life. I mean, I love it, but that's not all I am either. You know, but like, I mean, I, I just, you know, a lot of people I said just want to leave medicine and that's fine, but I love medicine. I love cardiac surgery. Do I like working in a full-time environment where I can't take any time off? No. You know, do I love where I have to stay? I can't get my tire changed because they want me to stay in the hospital to five o'clock at night. No. I mean, that happened to me once, but I think you can, there's a way to make medicine work for you. Yes. I think that's, Absolutely just critical because one um, theme that I work on with a lot of folks is, is redefining success. And, you know, when you look up the definition of success, it is achieving a stated outcome. And I think a lot of times we forget that we are the ones that state the outcome. And so we already have the definition of success and we can change the outcomes that we want. Um, and that's how we redefine success is starting to realize what's important to us, what our objective is. And then yeah. achieving it by just being the people that we are and not letting anything deter us. Right. Um, and I think that that is how we save medicine is, is us not forgetting, you know, the reasons why we do it. And then dumping off the stuff that we don't like, the fear of the job, the scarcity, you know, the, um, the administrative burdens or people asking us to do stuff that we know is ridiculous right. and right. not having the time off and not, you know, you know, forgetting that life is short. Um, right. I think that that this is such a, a great example of you know what's possible, and I think this idea of what's possible is going to be so inspiring to so many people, which is why you're such an obvious choice for this. And okay. Not no, I mean, people, you can create the life you want. Mm -hmm. You know, you can. You know, everyone said to me, "You cannot be a part-time cardiac surgeon." I mean, I even got offered a job as a part-time surgeon in Florida. And originally, when they offered it, they were like, "No, nope, we would never take part-time." I said, "Okay, then I don't want the job." Oh, actually, yeah, you could do part-time. I mean, you can be a part-time cardiac surgeon. I mean, and you know, a lot of people don't believe I do bypass surgery. I do valves. I do aortic dissections. I don't just go and manage the ICU. I am a real cardiac surgeon part and I do it part-time. You know, you can do it. Absolutely amazing. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Uh, Tresiola, for taking the time and, and really showing us what is possible in our life. And I think that really this is going to be such an inspiration for so many people that are stuck in the, the, the parts that you were at earlier and yeah. showing that there's a way out um, yeah. and a pretty inspirational way out is just well, is totally amazing. And, I, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I enjoyed, enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show and share it with fellow surgeons. Let's show each other what is possible. You can find more information at bosssurgery.com and the Boss Business of Surgery Series Facebook group. Until next time.